This is Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Barrett. Right now, it's Food Friday. If you spend any time in the kitchen, at home, or for your job, you've probably tried to cut down on food waste. But using up certain ingredients before they go bad is not always easy. Those mixed greens or that cantaloupe might look great when we bring them home from the store, not so much when we're ready to eat them. Our next guests are chefs and sisters who have tackled this issue head on and have some advice and recipes to reduce waste ourselves down to zero if we want and make some great food while doing it. We're listening back to that conversation now. You can join in by emailing ideas at WPR.org. How aware are you of food waste in the kitchen? Are there certain foods you find yourself throwing out way too often? Those greens, herbs, produce? Do you have any tips and tricks you follow to reduce food waste already? Let us know by emailing ideas at WPR.org. Irene Lee is a 2022 James Beard Leadership Award winner and lives in Boston working with the Maymay Dumplings team. And May Lee is the founder of Food Waste Feast, an online project to help home cooks quit wasting food. She lives in Glasgow, Scotland. They're co-authors of the cookbook Double Awesome Chinese Food, Their latest cookbook is called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable, zero-waste approach to home cooking. Central Time host Rob Ferret talked with them earlier this summer. Here's a listen. Irene, let's start with you. You both actually have a lot of experience in the restaurant business. Uh, Can you talk about your experience there? I assume just for pure reasons of the bottom line, you got to watch out for food waste, right? That's right. You know, when you cook in a professional kitchen, um, it's it's your job to not waste food. Uh, the ingredients are your raw materials. And so that's your money going in the trash. But, you know, at home, most of us have other full-time jobs. And so saving our food, making sure it doesn't end up getting wasted, that can kind of fall by the wayside. And May, why have you taken on reducing food waste as close to zero as possible? So when I wrote our first cookbook, I kind of realized how a lot of recipes make it difficult for for home cooks to use up what they have. Um, They might ask you to go out and buy some new ingredients and you might pick up something like you need a tablespoon of parsley. So you head out and you buy a whole bunch and then you don't know what to do with that parsley. You've got a bunch minus one tablespoon of parsley. So how do you use up the rest of those things? I wanted to figure out a way for home cooks to be as efficient as possible and um, stop putting so much food waste in the landfill. As it sounds like your previous guest mentioned, um, food waste in the landfill creates methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas, and it's it's really bad for the environment. And also all of that, uh, the raw materials and the natural resources that go into producing that food, all that gets wasted when your food goes into the trash. All right, one of the ideas in the book, I don't know who uh, gets credit for this one, I is like, I can't believe I never thought of this, the eat me first box. Uh, where did that come from? <laughs> That's definitely an Irene one. I'll let her take that. (laughs) Sure. So when we first got into our restaurant and we had a walk-in refrigerator, um, we knew that we had to do an even better job keeping track of all of our ingredients. In a walk-in, stuff can get lost really easily. So we decided to designate an eat me first box. Um, You could also call that use first uh, if you were in a restaurant. And that's where we put anything that is high priority to get rid of or use up. So it might be something that's nearing its best by date. It might be like half a tomato um, or a, a slice of lemon, sort of the odds and ends that if you don't pay attention to them, they might get lost uh, and end up getting wasted. So 
we love implementing that at home. Um, I definitely have had moments where there are several moldy half lemons in the back corners of my <laughs> refrigerator. So if we can do a better job keeping track of what needs to go, what needs to be prioritized, keeping that box at eye level, making sure it's labeled, don't let that migrate to the back of the fridge, um, that can help a lot. And May, one key to the book, when we're talking about produce, our fruits and vegetables, is, okay, this doesn't look so beautiful that I just want to eat this raw right out of the fridge, but that doesn't mean it's dead yet, right? Uh, could you talk about trying to find ways for that in between produce? That is totally true. So there might be a fruit that's not perfect to eat raw, but you could make that into jam, or you could cook it into a cake, or you could blend it into a smoothie. And the same goes for vegetables. You know, you might have this tomato that is not going to be the most delicious BLT, but it will make a perfectly good tomato sauce or could become gazpacho. Um, again, blending is really useful if the texture isn't perfect. And so there's so many ways to make sure that your produce that you spent good money on is getting eaten, even if it's not, you know, perfect salad quality. If you're going to cook it and kind of change up the texture, then you can have really delicious meals with that stuff that just doesn't look good. We're talking to May Lee and Irene Lee about their new book. It's called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable zero-waste approach to home cooking. You can join this Food Friday conversation. Have you found ways to cut back on food waste, or is there something that always gets you? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Irene, a big part of the book is uh, hero recipes, these recipes that are flexible uh, and they can work in a bunch of our different kinds of food that will otherwise go to waste. Can you talk about the philosophy be be behind these hero recipes? Yeah, we like to call them hero recipes. I call them superhero recipes <laughs> because they help you rescue food, um, all your odds and ends that you might not have a home for. They're basically templates. Um, so it might be a stir fry or a cream of anything soup. Um, and if you understand generally how the recipe works, you can modify it to accommodate any number of ingredients. So maybe you had a delicious cheese and charcuterie board last night, and now you have half an ounce of five different cheeses. <laughs> um, how are you going to use those? Well, you could look at um, a frittata or a soup or a fondue. These ideas are all about helping the home cook practice being flexible um, and just trying out whatever they happen to have on hand. And we always like to say, if the recipe doesn't come out so great, you just eat the evidence and you move on. <laughs> and we've got a few of these recipes at WPR.org slash Central Time, these hero recipes. Uh, May, let's check one of them out. The How You Like It Savory Pancakes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the recipe and how we can work some different uh, ingredients on the way out into our cooking. Yes. So this is one of my favorite recipes. It is based on the Japanese dish called okonomiyaki. And it's really interesting because it is actually kind of meant to be how you like it. And they met, they are made in tons of different ways. You could have these savory pancakes with uh, pork belly and squid, I believe is traditional, but you could also have it. I saw it once in a restaurant with um, a Thanksgiving special with turkey and cranberry sauce. So you can kind of put in whatever you can find in your fridge. You just use a similar base of cabbage, eggs, flour, and you're kind of making these delicious savory pancakes, but then you can toss in whatever you like. And it's so flexible and it makes it really easy to have this basic template that you make the same way every time, but a little part of it, you just switch it up based on what you need to use up. 
Let's bring on a caller now at 800-642-1234. Nancy is with us in Lock to Flambeau. Nancy, hi. Hi. What did you want to tell us about, Nancy? Oh, thank you. Hey, ladies, I love your book, and I struggle with this because I'm, I don't like waste. And, um, I mean, I worked at Greenpeace for years and stuff like that. But what I'm trying to do now is to convince my neighbors to give me their waste because I have a dear good friend who runs her own farm, and, and apparently chickens eat food waste all the time. I had no idea. And so if you have any advice about how do I, how do I, how do I make it into a community thing? Or maybe add that to your book, maybe. I, I don't know. Anyway, what do you think of the idea of feeding the chickens? Interesting, Nancy. That's a great use for the food. Uh, and I know, Irene, I believe both of you are big composters as well. Can you talk about other ways? Even if we humans don't end up eating the food, animals or microbes might. Yeah, so um, thanks so much for the call, Nancy. We like to think about food waste reduction as kind of a pyramid. Um, ideally, we would be able to feed uh, food that might get wasted to humans. Um, if not to humans, then to animals, chickens like you do, that's awesome. Um, and if not to animals, then at least we can compost it and retain some of the nutrients in the life cycle. We've also heard from folks um, while on our book tour that they and their friends might actually have uh, like food waste or food rescue potlucks. So everybody takes some leftovers and repurposes them. And it's kind of a fun little theme for a meal. So I think there are lots of fun ways to get other folks involved in this effort. And, you know, at the end of your potluck, anything that doesn't get eaten, that can go into a bin for the chickens. I think I'd rather go to a food rescue potluck than a food waste potluck. That sounds less You don't want to eat trash? (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, thanks a lot for that call. Uh, Michael is with us now in Nina. Michael, hi. Hi. So I love the show. And uh, I just wanted to say, it. As I'm, as we're growing older, my wife and I are now alone, and it's hard for us to eat a whole package of like blueberries and strawberries, um, and they're such good deals right now. So what we do is, or what I do is, I watch, and as they're they're starting to wilt a little bit, I'll cook them down into a compote. We had crepes this morning, blueberry crepes with. Uh, uh, topped with strawberries. It was really good. That sounds fantastic, Michael. I'm right there with you, man. Uh, you know, going from having two teenagers in the house to having zero teenagers in the house uh, makes me have to adapt what I buy and what I do with it. May, what do you think of Michael's? It sounds like he comes into that berry buying with that plan in place. Like, we're going to eat some, we're going to compote some, you know, you could freeze some too. That kind of planning when we get this stuff in the first place. Absolutely. That is so smart. Thank you for calling. And I love that idea. And, you know, fresh compo that you've made yourself is so delicious and you can kind of tailor it to your own tastes. I have two small children. And so I'm always saving little bits of fruit, especially when they decide they want one slice of apple and then they don't want the rest of it. (laughs) And so I put all those little extra bits of fruit into a bag in my freezer. It's called the smoothie bag. And then when they want a smoothie, I will just pop all those little bits of frozen fruit into the blender, blend it up with whatever kind of juice I have or yogurt or ice cream, and then they drink it as a smoothie. And I have also been known to, when they don't finish their smoothie, I will pour the smoothie into a popsicle mold and then feed it to them as a popsicle. So I am making sure that they are eating that expensive fruit that I've bought for them. Michael, thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Irene and May Lee about their latest cookbook on Food Friday. The book is called Perfectly Good Food, a totally totally achievable zero-waste approach to home cooking. I had a plan when my kids were little and they didn't uh, finish their food. It was called Dad. 
finishes their food. It had some uh, non-sustainable long-term consequences, I'll say that. Hey, you could join in with your thoughts on food waste at 800-642-1234. Is there something you always have trouble finishing up, you need some inspiration, or have you found solutions you want to share? Join in at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our Food Friday talk with sisters and co-authors Irene and May Lee about their new cookbook. It's called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable, zero-waste approach to home cooking. You can join in at 800-642-1234 and find a couple recipes from our guests at WPR.org slash Central Time. Let's go back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Amy is with us in Weston. Amy, hi. Hi, I love this topic. I just want to say that that's how I sort of do my shopping list now. I'll go into the pick and save the Kroger. I'll go into the produce area where they bundle up things for 99 cents. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to make baba ganoush with two eggplants for 99 cents. It's such a good deal. Otherwise, I know that would go in the trash there's never a brown banana that goes in the trash here, goes in the freezer. It can become part of a smoothie. There's just so many creative things that you can do without it going into the trash can. Amy, thanks a lot for sharing both of those ideas. Irene, first of all, her idea, she uh, she looks for that produce that's going bad. They're selling off cheap and uh, comes up with a plan based on that. Uh, what do you think of that philosophy? I love that. It sounds like Amy is a real pro. And part of what we want to do with the book is encourage people to experiment, um, to be empowered, to try out something that maybe they've never tried before. If They're inspired by what they see at the farmer's market or the grocery store. And the good news is that it also can be really budget friendly. So if you're able to buy seconds or B grade, you can make your dollar go a lot further. Thanks for that call, Amy. And May, uh, she also mentioned those bananas. Now, she'll freeze those bananas going off and use them as smoothies or in smoothies, which I also do. Also, coincidentally, one of the recipes you shared with us is the accidental best banana bread. Can you talk about your your banana bread? Yes, I I really love this recipe, which is funny because it came out of a total kitchen accident. (laughs) I was buying bananas at the supermarket and they came in one of those bags. I don't know if they're available everywhere, but... It was a bag that had banana recipes printed all over it. And so I figured, hey, I'll try this banana recipe. And I was sort of haphazardly multitasking in the kitchen, like I often do. And I left out an entire cup of white flour, (laughs) (laughs) which was like half the flour in the recipe. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be the best banana bread I've ever had. And I think it's, you know, it really brings out the banana flavor. It's not as bready. It's more like this kind of gooey banana cake and uh i i think it's fantastic and um it came out of a total accident so you know back to me experimenting in the kitchen is sometimes not following a recipe perfectly can lead to some fun new surprises thanks again for that call we're talking to irene and may lee about their new book perfectly good food a totally achievable zero waste approach to home cooking still time for you to share your questions or food waste solutions at 800-642-1234 find that accidental banana bread recipe online at wpr.org slash central time irene let's talk about expiration dates we're a big dairy state uh here in wisconsin uh, how by the book are we on on those dates Well, expiration dates, as it turns out, are really just the manufacturer's idea of uh, when a product is going to be at its best or at its freshest. 
Um, and so they don't necessarily have anything to do with food safety. It's the manufacturer's way of encouraging you to use it up when it will be um, at its peak. So we really encourage eaters and cooks to use their senses when it comes to evaluating whether food is safe to eat. How does it smell? Um, how does it feel? Is it slimy? Is it stinky? Um, and, you know, even food that has technically uh, perhaps sour or started to ferment in some cases can be safe to eat. Um, of course, if you're feeding kiddos or um, someone elderly or immunocompromised, you might want to be a little bit more careful. But the manufacturers uh, really they want you to enjoy the food as fast as possible and go out and buy more. So we want to say, take those dates with a big grain of salt. And May, can you talk about uh, using that freezer as our, our caller did with her bananas? Any advice on what to freeze, how to freeze it? Yes. So we love the freezer because we basically think of it as this magical time-stopping tool on your food. You can save food almost indefinitely with the freezer, but the quality will sort of start to degrade the longer it is in the freezer. So one big recommendation is to minimize as much air as possible in your free your freezer goods. So the air is what causes the freezer burn. And so if you can press out all the air from a bag or make sure to fill up to the top, um, liquids are an exception there. You wanna leave some space at the top for them to expand. And the idea is that the freezer will just hold stuff indefinitely. And as long as your freezer hasn't lost power or something, it'll hold on to your food. Um, but, you know, it, we know that it's sometimes easy to forget about something in the freezer. So we always encourage labeling and dating. So we personally like permanent markers and painter's tape. You can put it on your containers and say, you know, this is the beef soup I made um, in March, and then you don't mix it up for something like uh, spiced apple cider <laughs> six months later. Irene, over the years here on Food Friday, I've gotten some like, oh, uh, green onions or scallions. You don't just use the white part. You can use the green part. Or uh, Lydia Bastianich has me freezing my pasta water sometimes because you can use that in stocks and other things. Are there other examples where, hey, this is the thing you might not even have thought of as food, but you can actually do food stuff with it? That's a great question. One of my favorite recipes in the book is our scrap chili oil. Um, and so that really utilizes things that have a lot of flavor, but might not have um, the best texture. So think um, garlic peels or like the little butt ends of your garlic cloves, um, papery onion skins, um, ginger peels. These things are full of flavor. And when you pour hot oil over them, uh, you get this incredibly aromatic, delicious, savory sauce that you can then drizzle on whatever you want. And May, uh, speaking of those uh, bits that we don't always use, uh, soup is my magic go-to. If it's edible, you know, something you'd want to eat, it ends up in my soup. I often call it fridge soup. And if you don't really <laughs> eat it, like the stuff Irene was just talking about, I'll use it for making soup stock. Any thoughts on using soup as our magical cure-all for food waste? 100% I'm with you. Um, we have a recipe called cream of anything soup because we believe <laughs> the same thing. You know, you can have this vegetable with lots of flavor, but maybe not the best texture, or you don't really know what else to do with it. You can toss it into a soup and you can make it delicious. And we're also all about making things into condiments. And then you can use your delicious condiments to drizzle on top of your soup. And then it feels fancy and new and adds extra t different textures. So yes, we're all about it. Uh, time for one more call. Laura is with us in Madison. Laura, hi. Hi, Rob. What do you want to tell us about? 
Well, I have a couple ideas that are good for cutting down on food waste. And the first one I know you're familiar with because you've had um, shows like this before, but um, cook once and eat two or three times. And then my my second idea is, um, so when I make a meal and I have leftovers, I portion everything out right away after the meal for lunch size portions, and I put them in glass or clear plastic in the refrigerator so that my kids aren't standing in front of the refrigerator wondering what's <laughs> in there because they can see it. <laughs> Laura, thanks a lot for those ideas. The planning there, Irene, is the key, I think. Like, I kn- she knows she's making it for this meal and the next meal or for signal servings for her kids. Uh, leave us with some thoughts on, on that kind of meal planning to help avoid food waste. Yeah, I love that approach. And I think another really important thing is uh, glass or clear plastic. Um, When things are out of sight, they end up out of mind. And that's how I think a lot of food ends up getting forgotten about in the fridge. Laura, thanks for that call. And Irene and May, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. May and Irene Lee are co-authors of the new cookbook we've been talking about. It's called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable, zero-waste approach to home cooking. You can keep sharing your ideas on how to beat food waste, avoid food waste online. Go to the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. And then check out a few recipes, hero recipes from Irene and May. You can find those at WPR.org slash Central Time. We listened back to that conversation from earlier this summer. You can also visit WPR.org slash Food Friday to check out all the food-related talks we've had on the show and browse recipes from our guests. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you want us to talk about on a future edition of Food Friday? What ingredients are you excited about working with? What styles of cooking do you want to know more about? Tell us your stories, ask us your questions by emailing ideas at WPR.org. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferrett. The Republican-controlled Wisconsin Senate voted yesterday to deny the reappointment of Wisconsin Elections Commission Administrator Megan Wolf. And shortly after the vote, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call announced a suit challenging the vote claiming that it happened illegally. The state Senate uh, purported to take a vote on, uh, on a non-appointment of Megan Wolf. Um, so we are here today to announce uh, that we have filed suit uh, in Dane County Circuit Court. Um, we have asked the court to issue a declaratory judgment uh, and an injunction making clear that Megan Wolf remains the administrator of the Wisconsin Election Commission. We're going to unpack what led to yesterday's vote and later learn some more about the legal questions being asked. And we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have you been following this story? What do you think of this vote to try to remove Wolf as elections administrator? How important is it to you that we have an election administrator in place going into the 2024 elections? What's your response to all this? Call 800-642-1234, that's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. Anya Van Wagtendonk covers the state capitol for WPR. She covered yesterday's vote. Anya, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you remind us why this vote was happening in the Senate in the first place? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of complicated procedural details here. Um, Megan Wolf served out a four-year term administering Wisconsin's elections. That's including the 2020 election. And so she became sort of the face of many of the baseless accusations of fraud from supporters of former President Donald Trump. I should note that she doesn't craft election policy at all, but she was blamed for some decisions by the Elections Commission and then even for policy that predated her. So her term expired this summer, and normally the Elections Commission might renominate her to the role, but they didn't. Um, again, this is complicated. That was actually a sign of support because recent state law suggests that if she doesn't step down, she can just stay in the role as what's called a holdover. But Senate Republicans disagreed with that. They said she needed to go through a standard confirmation process. And so they held one, they had committee hearings and a public hearing over the last few weeks. And then yesterday's vote, which broke down a, 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 along pure party lines, Republicans all voted against confirming her, Democrats voted in support. And what was the scene like at the Capitol yesterday? Yeah, there has been so much going on at the Capitol this week, even beyond this vote. Um, so things were very lively. Um, for the vote itself, press was all kind of crowded around. Democrats, who, as I mentioned, have been protesting this whole process, gave speeches on the floor calling the vote unlawful. They even tried to stop it using a procedural move again. Um, of course, they failed to do so. And then, you know, notably to me, as someone who does attend a lot of these types of events, you don't always see many people in the galleries of the Senate. It's kind of mundane government business most of the time. Um, but a number of people who oppose Megan Wolf came to witness the vote. Some of these are actually kind of prominent uh, Wisconsin election deniers who also spoke out against her at the public hearing a couple of weeks ago. Um, and they broke into applause when the vote count was read out, which was really notable. That doesn't normally happen. And it's very much against the rules. And you mentioned those floor speeches. I want to give a listen right now to some of what Senate Majority Leader, a Republican Demon Levyhue, had to say yesterday. A key component of fair and honest elections is that the electorate have confidence in our elections. And if they don't have confidence in our elections, we're disenfranchising voters. They're not going to go out and vote if they don't feel that their vote is not going to be stolen or that there's fraud going on. The vote today represents a lack of faith the people of Wisconsin have in Megan Wolf to serve as administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue there. And Anya, there has been a state audit saying that some election guidance could have been clarified better. However, recounts, investigations have shown no widespread fraud and a very tidy election by all counts. However, is that narrative about confidence still sort of common among Republican leaders right now? Yeah, and I'll just point out that the guidance that's come out, you know, criticizing some of the actions that the Elections Commission has taken, again, had Wolf has no say in that. She doesn't give a vote for or against. And so some of that guidance, her job is simply to sort of communicate what the Elections Commission has already decided. But it is true that she became sort of the face of the criticisms of the 2020 election, some of which, you know, come from more official channels, some of which have been more of the kind of conspiratorial language we've heard heard about votes being um, stolen, the election being stolen from Donald Trump. So she's gotten sort of mixed up in all of that. And so that's part of what Republicans have said is that, you know, Wisconsinites deserve a clean slate. And that includes, you know, not bringing back the person who administered this very controversial election. For her part, Wolf says that giving into that argument would be a politicization of her nonpartisan office. 
And Megan Wolf will be on the morning show tomorrow with Kate Archer Kent to talk more about what's going on. Has Governor Evers um, weighed in on this at all? That's a good question. He has. He has weighed in in support of Megan Wolf and calling um, yesterday's vote uh, a sham, essentially. Um, and that's been kind of the argument of a number of Democrats and then also Attorney General Josh Call. You mentioned the lawsuit that he filed, essentially calling this entire process unlawful and illegal. And Evers in a statement also said that um, this is kind of the politicization and also the undermining of the faith in Wisconsin elections is going through this type of process is actually what undermines faith, not, you know, the actions taken by the commissioner or by Administrator Wolf. And I'll correct myself. Uh, that is Monday on the morning show, not tomorrow. It's almost the weekend. Um, <laughs> Josh Call announced the lawsuit uh, immediately after this vote, uh, challenging the decision, as we said before. Uh, what do we know about his argument for Wolf staying on as administrator? Yeah, so this gets back into that kind of nitty gritty process stuff. Um, listeners may remember a state Supreme Court decision from last summer that allowed Fred Preen to stay on at the DNR after his term expired. And what that ruling basically found is that if an appointed official doesn't step down, there's no vacancy to fill. So in other words, the official can stay in place kind of indefinitely. Call says that precedent applies to Wolf. Democrats at the time did not support the Preem decision uh, that was decided by a conservative court, and it was in support of a Scott Walker appointee. Democrats didn't support that, but Call says now the law is the law, and it applies to Wolf. And Anya, we have a, a presidential primary vote coming up in February of 2024, not too far off. Can you talk about the political timing of this event and what it could mean for the months ahead? Yeah, so the first elections of next year are nonpartisan uh, votes in February and then the presidential primary in April. Um, that's true for us as voters. That's the timeline. But for clerks who administer the election, the 1,800 local clerks in Wisconsin, they start their jobs much, much sooner than Election Day. They order equipment and print ballots, things like that. Um, and so we've heard from clerks that say they need to know who they answer to before then. Um, and of course, 2024 is shaping up to be another very dramatic presidential election cycle, as they all seem to be these days. And so we really kind of need to know who's in charge going into that. And as we wrap up, Anya, what are you watching for as a next step in this uh, ongoing story? Yeah, so we'll see how the DOJ lawsuit unfolds. Um, Wolf says she's continuing in the job, sort of unless and until a court tells her not to. Um, at uh, the press conference yesterday, uh, Attorney General Call said that the lawsuit may resolve relatively quickly. He said election lawsuits tend to move faster for obvious reasons. But as we just said, 2024 is right around the corner. So clock is ticking. Anya, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Thanks for having me. Anya Van Wagtendonk is WPR's state capitol reporter. We talked with her about yesterday's vote in the state Senate to remove Megan Wolf as elections administrator, a move that was challenged by Attorney General Josh Call. We're going to keep talking about the legal side of that in just a minute, and we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about the legal side of this story? What kind of effects do you think continued challenges around this position could have on next year's elections? If you work as a clerk or part of the electoral process, we'd love to hear what you're thinking and feeling right now. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. 
We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. We continue our talk about legal challenges around the status of Megan Wolf as Wisconsin Elections Commission Administrator. We're joined now by Eric Casper, Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and Director of the school's Menard Center for Constitutional Studies. Eric, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me. Now, we heard a little bit about it before the break, but uh, Attorney General Call is citing a state Supreme Court decision about former Natural Resources Board Chair and member Fred Prane as precedent for his challenge to this vote on Megan Wolf. Can you remind us again what happened with Fred Prane and why does it matter now? Sure. In the Prane case, uh, what happened is um, Prane was a member of the board that directs the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, He was nominated to that position in May of 2015. He was confirmed by the Senate in November of that year for a term that was uh, set to expire on May 1st, 2021. Um, In April of 2021, uh, Governor Evers nominated um, uh, Sandra Noss uh, to replace Prane, uh, but the Senate did not take up action on that new nomination. Prane continued to serve on the role on the board, and uh, by August of 2021, that resulted in the filing of a lawsuit by the Attorney General's office claiming that Prane was serving beyond the, the end of that term, and so therefore Uh, he shouldn't be exercising the the powers of a member of that board. Uh, Fast forward to June of 2022, we get a four to three ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court that absent statutory or constitutional language prohibiting a holdover period, incumbents may lawfully hold over after their statutorily prescribed term has concluded and until their successor is appointed and qualified meaning until a successor is uh, nominated and, uh, and confirmed by, in this case, the, the state Senate. And so that is uh, one of the obviously key precedents in this case uh, because of the ruling stating that even though a term of office may have ended uh, for one of these appointee positions until a successor has gone fully through a process of uh, being a, a nominated and confirmed, um, the, the person in that office already can continue to serve. So is there some uncertainty, some dispute right now about <laughs> what a vacancy in public office actually means? Uh, there is. Um, and this, in some respects, goes back to the question of, first of all, what it means to be appointed, and then uh, what, as you point out, what does it mean uh, for there to be a vacancy? Because the statutes um, state that the administrator of the Elections Commission shall be appointed by a majority of the members of the commission with the advice and consent of the Senate. And so what the lawsuit here is uh, arguing is that for uh, a majority of the members of the commission to appoint someone, that means a majority of all of the members. And there's six members on the commission, meaning that you need uh, four members uh, to be voting in favor of a nominee for it to be passed on to the state Senate. The Senate uh, majority, however, um, passed a resolution uh, earlier this year uh, stating that because the vote was three in favor and three abstaining uh, for Administrator Wolf, um, that the state Senate majority considers her to have been nominated by the Elections Commission, and that's why they took up uh, that question of confirmation here yesterday. We're talking with Eric. And then Cass- we get to the. Oh, sorry, Eric. Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. 
Oh, no, I was going to say, well, then that gets us to the question of um, if there has been an appointment uh, or not, and therefore whether or not there's been a vacancy. Because according to the Prane case, um, if you don't have some sort of definitive action um, that ends one's term of office uh, or you don't have a new appointee, then the holdover can continue to serve. And so the lawsuit is arguing that um, there was not a formal nomination put forward here. And so therefore, uh, the Senate rejection vote did not create a vacancy according to the terms of the Prane case. The Senate majority, uh, however, views this as um, if there was a formal nomination, then they could take action. And because they rejected that nomination, it means that the Senate action created a vacancy. And that matters in part because um, if there is a vacancy in terms of that administrator and it's not filled within 45 days of the vacancy occurring, then something called the Joint Committee on Legislative Organization is empowered by the statutes to appoint a temporary administrator. We are talking with Eric Casper right now, a political science professor at UW-Eau Claire, about the latest in the story over the Wisconsin Elections Commission administrator. We're also taking your calls at 800-642-1234. We'll go to the calls now. Uh, John is with us in Appleton. Hi, John. Greetings, and thank you for your service, both of you. Um, so I was not, I am, I am a liberal Democrat. I was not a fan of the Prane debacle. I think that was a debacle. I think it was really uh, bad. Now, um, in Megan, in Megan Wolf's case, it's, it's a little bit different for me because she's involved with elections and elections are pretty, pretty, pretty important in our whole democratic system. So, not that the environment isn't. I'm a staunch environmentalist, too. However, however, I think that when it comes to elections, there should be some special protection because what's happening is totally political. The Republicans don't like her because she upholds the, the reality that, that, you know, gets Trump, you know, booted out and, and you know, on the, as, uh, considered a loser. John, thanks for the call. I got you. You gave us a lot to work with there. Um, uh, Eric, John talking about how a position like Megan Wolf's should ideally be above politics. What do you think? Well, I mean, one of the questions here, um, both at the circuit court level where the case has been filed and um, if the case does eventually get appealed up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, is does, does the Prane case hold as precedent, or could this case be distinguished from it? Or given that we have a different makeup on the state Supreme Court, if they hear this case, uh, could they reverse the Prane decision? Um, because remember, the, the Prane decision was a four to three uh, outcome, and uh, Chief Justice uh, uh, Rogensack um, was uh, in that majority. Uh, she retired, and uh, now uh, Justice uh, Protasiewicz is on the court in her place. And so there's a question of whether or not the state Supreme Court will even uh, stick to that uh, Prane decision. But even if they do, uh, we're dealing with a different statute with some different requirements in terms of the appointment process. We're dealing with a different type of agency, as uh, the caller pointed out, the difference between the, the DNR and the Elections Commission, kind of what uh, their, the different roles of each of those agencies uh, could be. 
and you're dealing with a different nominator. Uh, in this case, it's the elections commission that does the nomination, not the governor's office. And this situation is a little bit different in terms of there's been definitive Senate action where in the Prane case, um, there, it was because the Senate didn't take up the nomination uh, that the lawsuit was filed. Here we had Senate uh, action in terms of a definitive vote yesterday. So for uh, these or a variety of these reasons, we could uh, wind up with uh, the Prane case being distinguished. And there's also, as a caller pointed out, um, a, a concern here with the upcoming election and um, the fact that uh, there are timely issues that need to be resolved because election day doesn't get pushed back farther into the future. Um, it's those election dates are already set for next year. Um, and so you need to make sure that we have the, um, the answers that local clerks need uh, from the administrator of the elections commission uh, as those issues arise. John, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Craig in Gaze Mills. Hi, Craig. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my uh, response to this is that I feel like I feel personally uh, insulted by this action by the Senate. I'm a chief election inspector um, here in Crawford County and have been for many years. And it's been said that all politics are local, but actually all elections are local. We're the ones who run the elections along with the clerks. And this um, saying that the public has lost confidence in the system, I think that's a result of constantly repeating groundless accusations, uh, when in fact we run very good elections. Thank you very much. Um, and to uh, to defame the commissioner, actually, I think is personally insulting to the Democrats and the Republicans and the unaffiliated inspectors who run the actual elections. Craig, thank you for the call. Um, Eric, Craig, saying that this goes well beyond Megan Wolf and kind of comments on the entire election system, including him. Yeah, and I mean, there are quite a number uh, somewhere in the range of 18 or 1900, you know, local election officials and other, you know, paid employees at the local level and lots of volunteers who are there on the front lines running these elections. Um, and they should be applauded for, you know, the work that they put in. And we want to make sure Whatever happens with this case, um, I think it's important that you get timely court resolution with some definitive answer, uh, because um, we don't want to be in a situation where there is confusion about who is the administrator of the Elections Commission when we're getting into a season when these elections officials and the people who work for them and then ultimately even the volunteers need that information that they have to rely on as far as what they're going to do uh, on Election Day. And Eric, in our last few moments here, do you think the state Supreme Court is the likely destination for this? Uh, it seems like it might be headed there. Um, you, you never know for sure. But um, if we're looking for a definitive answer, um, it may need to come from the state Supreme Court. Um, and um, this is because it involves elections. It usually is the type of case that has the potential to be fast-tracked if it needs to be decided by the state Supreme Court. Um, but again, we'll have to see how it plays out and what any type of ruling we get from a circuit court and if that ends up being appealed or not. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
Eric Casper is a professor of political science at UW-Eau Claire and director of the school's Menard Center for Constitutional Studies. We talked to them today about some of the legal aspects and challenges related to Megan Wolf's future as administrator of elections in Wisconsin. A reminder that Monday morning after 7, Megan Wolf joins the morning show with Kate Archer-Kent. And coming up on Monday on Central Time, a lot of apologies sound really bad. We learn how to get better at saying we're sorry and patching things up when we make a mistake. That and more coming up Monday on Central Time.